We're going to read in Second Chronicles chapter 26. We're going to actually do something a little bit different. We're going to start with the end of the story, and I want to introduce you to one of the greatest kings of the kingdom of Judah. His name was Uzziah, or also Azariah is his other name. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 22 to 23, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah, this prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. If you've ever walked amongst like gravestones, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us that it's more profitable to go to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. And every time, like, I'll go visit, like, a gravestone, oftentimes you'll see, like, a short description that is on the gravestones. Those are called, um, I think it's, like, epitaph. Am I saying that right? Epitaph. And usually in a couple words, you have a memory written to describe that person's legacy. What What was the legacy of Uzziah, one of the greatest kings of Judah? People would walk by his grave, and they would say, what about Uzziah? Uzziah had leprosy. Is that it? Well, no, that's not it, but that's what we remember. What a shame. He's dead. He had leprosy. And after 40 years of faithfulness, a lifetime of serving God and his people. In five minutes, he rewrote his legacy, buried not amongst his fathers, but the language there, it's a little bit confusing, but it's actually buried near his fathers in an isolated grave area because he had leprosy. As a constant reminder that he is marked by his failure. Uzziah reigned for 52 years, starting at the age of 16. Only Manasseh, King Manasseh, served longer. And under his reign, Judah flourished. And how tragic, how tragic is it that after years of faithfulness, usefulness, and fruitfulness... To leave only a legacy of failure. What would it be like after 20, 30, 40 years to build up a reputation that I have served God and then in 20, 30, 40 minutes to destroy that? Does that happen? I don't think I need to convince you that it does. History is full of that. The Bible is full of that. And the church is full of that. You see it amongst the big-time pastors, celebrity pastors. But going closer to home, like for every one celebrity pastor, there's probably a hundred church leaders that have fallen, who have failed, who have fallen into disgrace, or have turned away from the faith. I am not going to dance around the issue. What is prompting this issue? We are not hiding it. It's the moral failure of church leaders around us, close to us. Recently, that's come and hit home a little too close. Friends, ministry partners, 
people that I love and respect, people I went to seminary with, who I sing with, who I led with, who counseled me, who stood by my side. That's what's prompting this sermon, this series. And it's not just me. Some of you have gone through that. We have people from different churches, different backgrounds, and you have horror stories, too many of them. He had leprosy. He was abusive. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a thief. He committed fraud. He's corrupt. And it's appropriate for us to follow 1 Timothy chapter 3 because we last week, if you weren't here, we went over the high calling of leaders. And why are we talking about leaders especially? Because when leaders fall, the collateral damage is that much greater. Leaders represent someone beyond themselves. They represent Christ. They represent their church. They represent their families And it's sad how many of us can come or can share a story or we come from that type of background where we can, where we're still maybe recovering. I think it's mainly sad. How do do you feel when you think of individuals like that? I think it's mainly heartbreak. That's what I feel. But there's a part of me that's also angry about that. That is not how God designed it to be. And people are hurt. Many of you are hurt because of that. Your faith is damaged. Leaders are supposed to protect the flock, not abuse the flock. And I honestly, there's a part of me where I hear about mega church pastor or celebrity pastor or leaders I went to seminary with, where I honestly, I get sick of these stories a little bit. I get fatigued, and then I honestly, maybe I even get numb. Because it just seems like, there's another one. Year after year of another leader's failure or fall, like, why does that happen? How did that happen? What happened to Uzziah, and why does that happen to so many leaders today? Second Chronicles chapter 26 comes in the middle of like a, a little section of three chapters where you have leader after leader, grandfather, father, and son, three generations who started well and they finished terribly. And this section is a warning, warning after warning after warning of how we live, the decisions we make, the choices that we make today will make a huge difference tomorrow. To begin well is not enough. Many people begin well. Few finish well. And so we're going to ask the question, what happened? What happened in this story? And in studying Uzziah's life, we're going to see why did he ruin his life, his legacy, his reign? And we want to avoid that conclusion. This is a warning sermon. And honestly, I think for some of us, It should be a scary sermon. So let's talk about why leaders fail, and then next week we'll finish off this sub-series and talk about when leaders fail, okay? So two-part sub-series, sort of under the banner of 1 Timothy. We'll keep it very simple today. 
three points, Uzziah's rise, Uzziah's fall, and then I'll just end with some application for us. Uzziah's rise, Uzziah's fall, and then some application. Let's read Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 1 through 15. Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah's rise. Verse 1 says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Verse 6. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and everywhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephelah and in the plain, and he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army fit for war and divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael and the secretary and Messiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the armies, shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. If we can go back to our high school days, there's always that one kid. There's always that one guy or girl where... Your parents would have loved for you to hang out with him or her, but you hated this person. Why? Because he or she was just good at everything. They're just good at everything. If you're good at math and chemistry and physics, you should not be allowed to be good at English and poetry and rhetoric. Okay? You should not be allowed to then go out after never exercising, go and run like a five-minute five mile. You shouldn't be good, like pastors who have this saying, like when we feel insecure to ourselves, and then like if I have like this pastor friend who's really short, and he's always like, oh, you know, God is fair, right? God is fair. He'll give, he'll, you know, he'll sort of spread it around. But no, we know people like that, that it's not fair. They're just good at everything. A couple key words in this text, moreover, and... And as I'm reading it, it's just like, okay, okay, on and on and on about how this guy is just good at everything. 
There's a kid who's a whiz at math, and then he's good at everything else, and he's popular, and he's in drama, and, he, and the girls like him, and he's just remarkable in every single way. And you just know that this person is marked for greatness. Moreover, or on top of that, on top of that, Uzziah was that kind of person. He was brilliant, a visionary leader in the introduction. For some reason, it puts that he restored Eloth. That was like one of his greatest accomplishments because Eloth had previously been taken over, but it was a seaport. And it was lost during the reign of Jehoram, and it was part of the Red Sea and a very important spot for trade. Who restored it? Everyone be like, Uzziah. Uzziah did it. He's brilliant. He knew we needed that area. He achieved military success. Civic success, he had engines invented by skillful men, modern, innovative, advanced. He was an outside-the-box thinker. His head wasn't just occupied by international matters. He was an expert at domestic policy. He loved the soil. His army loved him because normally in an army during biblical times, you would have to provide your own armor and shield and weapon and different things. Uzziah provided all of that for his people. What kind of Uzziah, uh, what kind of general was Uzziah? Like, man, I would love to follow him. He's got my back. That's what his army would say. Well-trained, well-equipped, well-organized, well-delegated, many mighty men. He takes down their long-term rivals like the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Arabians, the Munites. Not just takes them down, but he has them bow down before him. They bring him tribute. Good old Uzziah, thank God we have him. And soon with his power, his skill, his gifting, he's, he becomes pretty well known. He wasn't someone who was famous just for being famous. Right? I, I just don't really understand that still. Like they're famous for being famous. He had a very legitimate reason why he was famous. And he wasn't just a local prodigy. He wasn't just famous in Judah. His fame spread all the way to Egypt, to the border of Egypt. Anywhere you go, you could mention the name Uzziah. It's like, man, have you heard of Uzziah? Did you see what Uzziah did? He's done an amazing thing. He's terrific. He's the greatest leader we've ever had, Uzziah. Every aspect, in every aspect, he's head and shoulders above the rest. There's no peer. No matter what he turned to, it just seemed like he was good at it. What could go wrong? And he wasn't just a good king. He wasn't just good at school. He was the youth group star. That's what made him extra special. Verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He wasn't someone who gave in to peer pressure. He's not the guy in class. He's like, oh, what does that girl in third period think of me? He is asking himself, is this right in God's eyes? Is this the right thing to do? That's a simple question for us. How often do we ask ourselves, is this right in God's eyes? Is this the right thing to do? Verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He sought God. He searched after God. He's a kid that was God-centered. He's got his focus on God. You just know there's something about him when he sort of sets his priorities, when he decides how he's going to use his time, You could tell he's devoted. He had a godly leader. 
He was under godly mentorship, we might call it today. Zechariah, the priest, instructed him in the fear of the Lord. I mean, if he was around today, I imagine he's the type of guy where he would constantly be meeting with leaders, just asking, can we meet? I just have a lot of questions. I just want to learn. I want to learn about the Bible, and I'm going to go to this religious leader, Zechariah. He'll mentor me. He'll call me out. He knows me well. It's not just like a how-to relationship. It's not just like a practical, here's how you do this, here's how you manage your finances relationship. It's a how do you fear God relationship. Are you pursuing holiness? I, I think it's okay if we're, we're in this culture where it's constantly about like affirming each other, understanding each other, empathizing with each other. If you know me, that's sort of my natural bent. But are we instructing each other in the fear of the Lord? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1. Do you know who God is? Do you remember who Jesus is? Do you know you're called to a life of holiness? Not just like, I understand you, but here's the gospel. Let me share the gospel with you. You need to pursue the Lord. You need to cut that out. That's the type of relationship they had. It wasn't just like, let me, my job is to comfort you and to make you feel better. No, my job as as a leader or for any Christian, our job is not simply to make each other feel better. It's to point each other to Christ, make them more like Christ. We need people who help us pursue holiness, not happiness or comfort or just good feelings or feeling better that night. Like, it's always a red flag to me when I meet people, like when I did college ministry or campus ministry, I ask, like, who's your pastor? Or what church do you go to? Cool. Cool great church. Uh, What's the pastor's name there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, do you have like an older man or woman or just mature people investing in you? Who knows you? (laughs) I I have to put in like, I I wasn't sure if I should... put this in because it's probably a waste of time, but I always like, when I counsel people on dating, I like to think of myself as a date doctor. I'm the only one that thinks that way though, right? I always tell them like, ladies, if you come and ask me, like, what do you think about this guy? I will tell you the truth. Don't ask, don't ask his friends. Don't ask his friends. His friends will always say, he's a great guy. He's awesome. No, go and ask, what does his small group leader think? What does his pastor think? What do some of the older people at his church think? And if he doesn't have anyone that can affirm him, that's a red flag. Who is he becoming like? Who is he following? Is he his own leader? Is he his own teacher? Is he under godly instruction? Is he under godly leadership? teaching from many or preferably many advisors, let's put ourselves up against this standard. Do you ask yourself, is this the right thing to do in God's eyes? Would people around you say that you're pursuing God wholeheartedly? And are you under godly leadership and instruction? That's Uzziah. He's at the top of his game great power, great fame, great spiritual life. His enemies feared him. There goes Uzziah, our leader. As long as we have him, what could go wrong? 
But there's this, uh, I like it when the Bible authors, they don't just like recount the history, but they like throw in a little commentary. Like you see that all the time in the Gospels where, you know, Mark may put in a little commentary about why this happened or what was going on behind the scenes. And it's always cool to sort of get behind the curtain and sort of know what's going on behind the scenes. Like what are the hidden factors that made Uzziah such a great leader? And the chronicler gives us some behind-the-scenes commentary, like what were the factors that made Uzziah Uzziah? Yes, he was spiritually faithful, and God prospered him. God blessed him. That's true, and we don't need to pack that. As long as he pursued the Lord, God prospered him. But what was the main reason he was successful? Verse 5, God made him prosper. Verse 7, God helped him. Verse 15, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. Marvelously helped till he was strong. That's the fullest answer right there. Why was he so strong? Because God helped him. That's the reason he was so successful. Not just helped, like my daughter will help me do the dishes. She's my supporter. She's my supplement, but I could do it without her. To us, help is sort of a weak connotation. That's not how it is in biblical times because God is described as the helper to us. Women are described as the helper to men. And there's no, like, there's nothing weak about that. But God marvelously helps, greatly helps As in, he's carried, he's the reason, God is the reason he's doing okay. Behind the scenes, Uzziah was marvelously helped to his people. He's like this wild success. He's amazing. All the people came to make him king. He was the obvious choice, competent, gifted, successful. But what went wrong? Verse 16. Let's read to verse 21. Uzziah's fall. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Uzziah, man, you're, you're 20 years old. How did you accomplish so much? Uzziah, you're 30. You've, you've conquered our greatest enemy. Uzziah, you're 40. You're the most celebrated king we've ever had. You're the greatest king. Uzziah. You're in your 50s. 
What happened? What happened? Verse 16 is my nightmare. To fall into disgrace, destruction, and unfaithfulness, not because of my circumstances, but because of evil in me. And none of us are at this point in age, right? This is not a sin of youth. He was in his mid-50s. None of us are there yet. And there is such a thin, a razor-thin line between being a leader or someone who is successful and gifted and competent and being someone who is proud and destructive and unfaithful. from being marvelously helped to being destructively proud, to attributing your success, your success to God and attributing your success to yourself. It is such a thin line. It's this humanly impossible line to be in a fruitful, successful, competent leadership position without falling into pride. And the second Uzziah was successful, he was on the ledge of failures. And I can imagine that his meetings with Zechariah had stopped by this time. He starts believing his press reports. He starts cutting out the newspaper articles. He sees his trophies behind him. He sees the people around him that only tell him, how amazing you are, Uzziah. You're so gifted. Look at the fruitfulness of your reign. You're strong. You're competent. You're decisive. You're powerful. You're a visionary leader. All praiseworthy things. But when it came to evaluating himself, if we ask the psalmist, When he asked the question that the psalmist asked, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Instead of saying my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth, he now says his help comes from me. No more seeking what is right in God's eyes. We can assume no more people around him that will tell him what he needs to hear. Or too little, too late. Uzziah, your name, Uzziah, means Yahweh is strong. Or his other name means which is Amaziah, okay, I think I said Azariah earlier. His other name, Amaziah, means Yahweh helps. Yahweh helps, and Yahweh is strong, and he forgot all that. And listen to me. Not just for leaders, but for anyone who's doing well. The more successful you are, the closer you are to failure. The more successful you are, the closer you are to failure. And Uzziah's pride led to his unfaithfulness and he entered into the temple and he took up a role of the priest which was forbidden to him. Now, when we read that, maybe it's like, what's the big deal? Did he go out and like mow the lawn or something, like something he wasn't supposed to do? We read that, and we're not really sure why that's a big deal. He was a king? Yes. He was a great king? Yes. He's a national war hero? Yes. But he was not a priest. And he was no longer satisfied being a great king. He wanted the authority and power of a priest. And to take up the priestly role when you're not part of the Aaronic family 
is a big deal. In Exodus 30, Numbers 16, Numbers 18, Exodus 30, 10, only a specific family from the line of Aaron can do it. And it is a capital offense because purity of worship is extremely serious to God. Nadab and Abihu were killed by God for authoring, uh, offering up unauthorized fire before God because at its heart, it's a lack of fear of God when you no longer take worship seriously. Uzziah was not ignorant. Okay? And most people in the church, it's not because of ignorance when we choose to do something like this. What is at the heart of this is Uzziah saying, you know, I know God says this. I know his word is clear on this, but you know, God could sort of just sit over there and I'm going to do it because I want to do it. That's what's at the heart of this. I'm Uzziah. I can do whatever I want. There is no out of bounds for Uzziah at this point. God says this, but I can do it anyways. And he dethrones God and he enthrones himself. And for leaders like Uzziah, little by little, there's no out of bounds for them. They are the exception rather than the example. And he starts and he takes a right that is not his to take. And that's the mindset of a leader who falls into something really scary. Something expressly, clearly forbidden by God. Sexual sin. Monetary fraud. Abuses of power. Corruption. I am no ordinary man. And literally, it's like he can't, he's caught red-handed. The incense is in his hand. And at this moment, honestly, like if this was Nadab and Abihu, they were killed instantly. They were struck down instantly, and that would have been completely just. But God, I ask, like, why didn't God kill him? He's giving him a chance here. He's showing mercy. He's long-suffering. He's being patient with Uzziah at this point. And he shows him mercy because, you know, like Uzziah, you've made this terrible mistake but one of the marks of good leaders, even when they make a big mistake, they turn around. They make another decision to fix their first wrong decision. And Uzziah is given that chance here. He's given a chance to repent and turn course. What happens next is the mercy of God. 81 men of valor, 81 priests, they follow him into the temple. And I love how God describes them. Like these were men of valor, men of courage. There's such a positive regard for them because they were risking their lives confronting the king. They probably had it in their memory how just two generations ago, Uzziah's grandfather killed a priest for confronting him. They knew that Saul slaughtered a city of priests for confronting him. And to challenge royal authority is done at great personal risk, but they go in, they are men of valor because purity and enforcing purity of worship was that big of a deal to them. And these men are courageous. They're men of valor. And they don't hold back the punches. Uzziah. That's not your job. Uzziah, what are you doing? Uzziah, that is not right. Uzziah, you're rebelling against God. And it says they withstood him. 
You have done wrong. They weren't just comforting him. You have done wrong. This is not for you. Get out of here. You will not receive the honor that you're seeking. You are in disobedience or rebellion against the holy God. There is no flattery here. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. R.C. Sproul, um, he mentions a long time ago, I heard this quote. It says, Flattery is really an insult disguised as a compliment. And this, for some of us, will be the most important point of our lives when someone comes up to you and they say, don't do this. Don't do this. This is wrong. Turn away from this. This is dishonorable God to God. You are rebelling against God. And everything in you at that moment will want to defend yourself. You will want to blame them. You are a great lawyer. Every one of us has an inner lawyer in us where we are so good at coming up with every single argument to justify ourselves. And maybe it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, if someone comes up to you and has the courage to do what the priests are doing right now, say thank you. Thank you for saving my life, my ministry, my family. Thank you, God, for the mercy of putting someone next to me who will pursue me into my foolishness, my stupidity, my sin, and tell me this is not right for you to do. And you have that choice at that moment to either be a fool or to be wise. Proverbs 12.15, the way of fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 9.8, do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Thank you to the one who's willing to say to you, don't do this. Even, listen, even if it's not done in the best way. Even if it's not done in the most sensible way. Don't be so arrogant to think, well, you you didn't say this right, therefore there's no truth in it. Even if it's done insensitively. Say thank you to that person who is willing to love you enough and to rebuke you. Don't hate that person. Uzziah, at this point, God gave him mercy. He could have saved his reign. He could have saved his kingdom. He responded like a fool. And instead of loving the priests, he hated them. And I can imagine what the inner lawyer of Uzziah would have said to them. He's like, come on, guys. I'm the king. You wouldn't even be here. There wouldn't even be 81 of you if it wasn't for me. Do you know what I've done? There wouldn't even be a temple if it wasn't for me. And he foolishly tried to make the issue about something else in order to avoid a sin, and he got angry. The wording there is actually, he raged at them. I've seen that. He raged at them. And at that moment, at that moment, at the height of his pride, Uzziah, 
competent, master of his destiny, the one in charge of the king, the one who was strong, was struck by leprosy, which is a skin disease, and where? Not on his arms, because they're probably going to be covered, maybe by priestly garb or kingly robes. They were probably all covered publicly on his face, right there for the whole world to see. The world will know. They'll see his picture on the internet. And the one who would leave the temple is now running out of there. He's hurried out. And I bet at that point he learned the fear of the Lord and he had to learn that the hard way. And God in his mercy spared his life, but he did not remove the consequences of his sin. Unclean, cut off, no public worship. His rule was over. His sin would follow him for the next 10 years and then it would follow him to the grave. Who lives in that cottage? That's Uzziah's cottage. The king lives in a cottage? Yeah, he has leprosy. Such a great start and such a tragic ending. And he would live that way until he died, a lonely old man who had leprosy, and he would be buried, and he would not be buried in his family land. He would be buried near it because of his skin disease. And every time someone walked by, there's Uzziah. He had leprosy. The trophies are all gone. The glory is all gone, long forgotten. He had leprosy. And in 1931, a scholar from Hebrew University in Jerusalem found a burial plaque, which in Aramaic read, Here were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open. And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field that belonged to the kings, for they said he is, lep- he is a leper. I have some simple applications for us. I'll speak to the church, I'll speak to the leaders, and then I'll speak mostly to the individual. For the church, I will, I will just say the obvious and cliche. Pray for your leaders and provide real community for them. Speaking as one of the leaders, we're not better than Uzziah. It's not natural to us to pursue God. Complaining is easier for us, and we definitely make our share of mistakes. But praying for your leaders, as 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, pray for those in positions of authority in high places that is pleasing to God. Don't just pray broadly. Pray specifically. Not just like, God, be with my pastor, but pray biblical prayers. Pray that we would... We would act according to a godly conscience. Pray that we would speak boldly and that God may open up a door for us. Pray that we'll have Christ-exalting marriages. Pray that we will have courage and humility. I think, I think it's just easy for um, me to sort of fall into this and for us to sort of think of our leaders in this way where we forget that our leaders are in desperate need of the ministry of the body. And we start to think it's a one-way thing. And when I start to think like that, I am scared of myself. 
You know, some people need to raise their standards and not so- tolerate unacceptable patterns of sin in their leaders. I would never want to be at a church where they have low standards of leadership. But other people need to have their expectations of leaders tempered where they see their leaders and they realize they need the same thing as the rest of us. Where, our, where your leaders, us as leaders, are more like you than unlike you. Leaders need friends, not just followers. We need true community. And as a side point, I hope you understand I say this in the most compassionate way possible, but if you lose your faith because a leader fails, then your faith was misplaced. Your faith was not in Christ. It's important to see leaders as one of us, and they're in the same category. Pastors are sinners, and pastors are in need of your grace, and we are called to help them progress. 1 Timothy 4.15, to steal some future material from Rand, uh, it says, Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them, so that all may see your progress. In light of 1 Timothy 3, I actually get encouraged by this because, you know, Paul just said there's a standard of leadership. You have to reach a certain level of maturity. That's true. But people also need to see your progress, Timothy, which assumes there are levels that he has not yet reached. Are we as a church, a church that encourages, prays for, enables our leaders to grow and progress in their faith? Are we as devoted to their process of growth as much as we are ours? I have it written here. Everyone would love to change something about their pastor. My flesh is rising up right now. <laughs> I, was, I was telling Randy, I'm not going to abuse the pulpit, but he keeps, he keeps dinging me in the last couple of sermons. But, you know, is there anyone that is fully satisfied with their leadership? Like, I, I, I've never met someone that's like, man, if they're perf- that's just not going to happen. But do we pray for the leader and where we want them to go? Pastors and leaders are members of the body. They're in desperate need of the ministry of the body. We're not exceptions. If you want better leadership, you can help get one by praying for the one you already have. For leaders, <laughs> Rand, I resisted that temptation there. <laughs> okay, I, I mean, oh man, I, you know me and Rand when we first uh, met. <laughs> I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I, I didn't like him. Right, I didn't like him. I was the one in the interview, like, well, tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about this, right? And then uh, I've come to respect him dearly, and he's like one of my closest friends. <laughs> but I was like, we got off on a bad foot. I, like, I don't like him. He's so easy to judge. Right? He's so easy to condemn. I'm like, God, I just I want to change this and this and this. Change how you dress and, you know, like things like that, you know. But it's funny because uh, this has absolutely no relevance to this sermon. But uh, um, 
when we met, I, we had his interview, and then we hired him. I was like, God, maybe my heart is being too condemning, you know, and I repented, and the next day, I was in Irvine, and uh, we, uh, I, I was at a Starbucks I've never been to before, and I've never been there since, and then the next day after his interview, Rand walks in, right, and he was going to start, like, the week after, and then I was like, oh, hey, Rand, it's the guy in all black, you know, there he is again, right, and then, and then we bonded, and we became friends over Final Fantasy VII, and I was like, oh, I like this guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and for us, I think for both of us, it's been a journey of growth since then. Where we, you know, we know, we know each other's flaws pretty, pretty well. But thankfully, I think there's been progress. For leaders, I'm going to add a qualification to 1 Timothy chapter 3, okay? If I could add something, and it is throughout the Bible, you know what scares me about gifted, competent, successful, and especially young leaders? It's when they haven't been broken. We have strong, gifted leaders who are, are, they've just never been broken and how do we have leaders who are humble and yet not like, not passive? How do we have leaders who are humble and courageous and, and confident, but they're not prideful? How do we have that? They had to have been broken. They had to have suffered, honestly. That's why Paul is given a thorn in the flesh. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 10, it says, God gave me this thorn in the flesh to keep me from what? Pride. To think too highly of myself. To get too big-headed. He gave me this thorn in the flesh to keep me humble because he was as gifted, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. How can he be humble and yet courageous? He had to be broken by God. And I could say, here's the application, be humble, be humble as leaders. But I think more specifically when it comes to this passage, it's be broken. We need leaders who are broken. I don't need competent leadership. I need broken leaderships who are not so strong. Those leaders are scary, but they are weak. They know they're weak. We don't need Uzziah's. We need Jehoshaphat's. In 2 Chronicles 20, here's this weak king who struggled with peer pressure. He's facing this army, and he has no idea what to do. He, he is so scared. He's powerless. And one of my favorite prayers in the entire Bible, in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the type of leader we need. That's the type of leadership we need. God breaks the ones he loves of their pride. He disciplines the ones he loves. Hebrews 12, Psalm 51. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. We must be broken. A contrite spirit God will not despise. A broken person doesn't have to prove their rights, but they're willing to yield their rights. Broken people are self-denying. Broken people care about what God thinks, not what other people think. A broken person is grieved by their sin, not just the consequences of their sin. A broken person always realizes, I need help. Not just help, I need God to marvelously help me. 
so rare to find young, humble leaders. Honestly, the ones that we want are the ones who have gone through suffering and they've come out more broken, not more bitter. They didn't give in to the temptation to feel sorry for themselves. Isn't it like, like such a profound thing that God may break you and he may do it in a way where you are thankful to be broken? That's the only way we can be humble and courageous. Lastly, for individuals. There's a philosophy I've lived by the entire second half of my life, and I believe it with all my heart, and it saved me in many instances where I could have hurt myself, and you've probably heard it from me before, but who is the biggest problem in my life? It's me. Who is the biggest problem in this society? What's the biggest problem in this society? It's me. It's me. Patrick Cho is the biggest problem in my life. I am most suspicious of myself. You know, that cynical side of me helps out in this way. I am most wary of myself. Am I objectively the biggest problem in society? Please don't say yes. Okay. No, I don't think so. Am I the only problem? But let me tell you, when I'm walking with the Lord, when I'm at my best, I feel my brokenness more than anyone else's. I am most in touch with Patrick Cho's sins, my brokenness, my fallenness, my corruption. I feel that the most. I don't feel that person's, oh, that person's sins greater. I feel my sins. I am most burdened by my sins. I am most grieved by my brokenness. And let me just tell you the honest truth. Whatever you think of me, whether good or for bad, I am worse than that. My wife definitely knows that. Because there is a part of me and there is a part of you where every part of you, that fleshly part of you that wants to remove every good and pure and lovely influence that God has given you for your well-being. Hasn't the pandemic just shown us that? Be wary of yourself, that inner lawyer that wakes up every single day and you have that imaginary conversation to justify yourself over and over again about how you are right and that person is wrong. Be wary of saying, you know, this story doesn't apply to me. That could never happen to me. What a shame. He just didn't have high enough standards, standards, but not me. Be wary of yourself, that part of you that is so defensive when people are even in the slightest way critical of you. Be wary of that pride in you that's, that looks down on others while at the same time needing their approval. Be wary of that big name, that big compensation package, that big corner office that you're lusting over right now. That part of you that is so critical of your spouse. Why are you critical of your spouse? And you put all these legalistic, religious obligations on them. Why? Is it for their good? No, because they're tarnishing your reputation, your pride, your glory. That part of you that does not know how to say, I don't know, or I'm wrong, that just always has to be right. 
I'm just going to speak to the men, and I know women struggle with lust too, and they cheat and they commit adultery, but I'm going to talk to the men. Be deathly afraid of that internal script that you have been rehearsing over and over and over again for decades. Get serious about that. Don't just share it. Fight it. Because the more you rehearse that internal script, the more Uzziah's destiny is likely to be yours. Do we think leaders fall into sin overnight? It seems really quick in this chapter. It almost seems like it was one verse. But let me just tell you, it's not like that. It's leaders, they don't fall into sin. I, I, you know, I have to catch myself when I say I fell into sin as if it was something that happened to me. No, they chose, when I confess, I'll say, I chose to do this. One step at a time. It's over decades. One step at a time. They take one step down, one step down, one step down until they find themselves at the bottom covered in mud. They don't fall into sin. It's not something that happens to us. It's something we choose. Why do leaders fall? It wasn't a one-time decision. It was a slow leak. It was these thousand little compromises that happened along the way. Why do leaders succeed? Why do leaders become godly? It wasn't three or four or five big steps they took. It was a thousand godly decisions they made that no one else saw. And some of us, some of us right now are on a trajectory that is just a little bit off. A little bit off. You're not heading north. You're just slightly off. And let that happen and leave that alone and be passive about it for the next 10 or 20 years and then you will end up in a very scary place when you're 50. And the wrong choices that we make today will mark not only my life and your life and your usefulness for God, but it will mark my marriage, my children, my legacy forever. And no matter how smart or strong or effective and spectacular and well-known you become, you could take all that down in 30 minutes. Do you understand, like, there's an enemy out there. We know that. Satan is out there and he has a bullseye on our back. But there's an enemy within me that wants to keep me from finishing well. That wants to crush aside and put aside and run away from community. That will, like... I hate it so much when people confront me, confront me honestly. And I am so scared of that side of myself. And it's not because I know you individually. It's not because I'm thinking of individuals here. But it's because I know human nature. And some of you are there right now. We're at a crossroads where previously forbidden activities are now accepted. Where because of your success and reputation, your years of faithfulness, like, oh, I've grown a lot as a Christian. We can even take pride in our growth as a Christian because of your job, because of how people think about you. You start to think you're worthy of all the blessings that God has given to you. You start to think that I have a right to enjoy worldly blessings that the world enjoys. 
And we start to think that all of my success is because of my toil, rather than being marvelously helped, rather than remembering that everything you have is by God's grace, and the only thing we deserved was hell. We have a lot in common with Uzziah. How easy is it for us? How many times have I forgotten the countless ways that God has provided for me and that moved me to discontentment and then to pride? Do individuals who fall, do leaders who fall, do they start terribly? No, they started well. They started with an honest desire. I start with an honest desire to serve God. That's why we go into ministry And we choose this path because we want to honor God. But little by little, little opportunities come up. You meet different people. Different doors open up where it's like, oh, that's the person I want to be. There's a standard. There's the glory. And little by little, instead of following the Spirit, we are following our pride. That's where I need to be. What's the goal? Is it, you know, we started with God's glory But your money is not the goal. Your position is not the goal. Your success is not the goal. We have an upward call to be living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to spread the gospel, clean hands, a pure heart, a soul that is not lifted to falsehood, making disciples, one day hearing God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the goal. Be wary of yourself. Now, I can end it here, but if I did that, I would be a bad pastor because I know some of you right now, maybe right now there are people that are off track. You're off track. Or maybe some of you are listening right now, you're off track. You're growing bitter. You're growing discontent. You're disconnecting yourself from the community. Anyone who will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, you're not listening. There's a leak, and you're pushing God and others away. As long as you're alive, there's always opportunity to finish well. You know what I don't want you to think I'm doing at this point? I don't want you to think I'm offering a second chance. That's not what I'm doing right now. Because a second chance implies like, God, if I just, you just give me another chance, then I'll get it right. I can do it. I don't really need to be helped. I can do it. No, we need way more than a second chance. You need repentance. You need to recognize your utter weakness and inability to do it on your own. You need to crucify your pride and any desire that still wants to do it on your own. We need to die to ourselves. Don't pray for a second chance. Pray that you would have a desperate, a recognition of your desperate need for God. As sinners, we're not going to get it right just because we have a second chance. No, we need to be broken, not given a second chance. We need God's transforming, saving grace. We need God. And God offers himself to us for those who, in repentance and faith, turn to Christ. Whether you're a Paul and you were the worst of sinners at that time, whether you're a Peter who betrayed Jesus, or even King David, a murderer, an adulterer who committed 
serious sin. How does the Bible remember King David? Was he that different from Uzziah? Acts chapter 13, verse 36. The New Testament goes back, and here's how, the, uh, here's how they look at David. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Isn't that a great verse? In contrast to Uzziah's legacy, look at David. He failed in every possible way. His legacy, and yet his legacy was that he served the purpose of God in his generation. Why? Because he listened and he turned and he repented. He was broken. And because he was broken, he was restored. And he went on to teach other transgressors and sinners the ways of God. Isn't that beautiful? Because there's Psalm 51. Even though he committed this grievous Sin, he finished well. Many begin well, precious few end well. Savior, we need your help. We need the leaders. We need your help. Yeah, we're, we're very, we're messed up. And as a church, man, it's something we desperately got to pray for. Thank God, thank God that it's not up to, it's not because of I'm faithful. Thank God it's because he's faithful. And by his grace, I am who I am. By by his grace, we are where we are as a church, very blessed. And it's only because of his grace that we'll finish well. Let's pray. Father, we are very much like Uzziah. We're so quick to forget you, so quick to attribute success to ourselves, so quick to steal your glory. In every single way, I find myself so self-centered. God, we just want to confess that before you, that when we see leaders around us fail, that breaks our heart. And we know we are not beyond that. And so please, at this moment, protect us from saying that our help comes from us. But like the psalmist, may we lift up our eyes to the hills, to the heavens. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from you, our maker the maker of heaven and earth. And forgive us of our pride that just thinks we we were so, so strong. We know what we're doing. Look at us. We're we're a year in. We're, We're growing. People are coming to salvation. But God, I pray that it will be the prayer of our hearts that always, right now, we just want to confess we don't know what we're doing. But God, our eyes are on you. We face so many situations in our church right now. People that are hurting and broken. Where we, we don't know what to do, God, but we need you to do a great work. Help us, God. Save us from ourselves. Break us if necessary.
And so help us now to get back on track, to repent of our sins, to turn to Jesus Christ, to put our faith in Him, not in leaders, to remember how faithful you are. You have always been faithful. You have always been good. And despite the failures of the church, you are still good. And so we thank you and we love you. And thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.